Good afternoon, everyone. Um, when we started uh, earlier, we were told that there's no lapel mics, so I'm going to try my best to stick behind the podium. Maybe if I do move away, because I don't really like standing behind a podium all the time, just wave if you can't hear what I'm saying. Good luck with the height of the microphone, Lucas. Um, so I hope you've, you've had a, a good start to the, the convention. Um, I almost felt like after listening to the plenary this morning, we couldn't have, have asked for a better start to focus the minds um, on, on our topic also today uh, that we'll be talking about. Just to clarify, um, I think when speaking about AI and machine learning, the expectation is often that you're going to have a nice, juicy, technical topic. We've actually specifically avoided that. I think there's some wonderful, wonderful uh, workshops that are being presented, very practical. Um, so we're not going to be telling you whether you should be using R or Python, whether you should be using PyCharm or uh, something like Jupyter to be building your things in. Um, we've really wanted to stick to the more practical application um, around how you actually do this within the organization, within the environment in which you work. Um, from a theoretical point of view, I think also uh, there's a talk tomorrow by Ron Richmond, uh, who's probably doing some of the best work out there at the moment um, in terms of the, the theoretical considerations and then also sharing the work that, that he's doing. So what are we then going to talk about today? So to set the scene, I like to refer to one of my favorite movie characters of all time, Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. And he said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should. So this morning's talk by, by Alan Peddle was for me I mean, it's almost a dream come true. If, if you operate in this environment, if you um, have ever tried to build some of these, uh, these things, hearing the words, you build it first, and then you figure out how to use it later, is music to my ears. However, with some actual um, experience and what we've also seen um, in, in many of the engagements we've worked on, is that this is hardly ever the case, especially if you are dealing with an existing insurance company or an existing entity that's actually making money. They're not doing too badly. So, so where does that leave us then in terms of the next steps? These two views seem almost counterintuitive, and we can't bring them together. So I think I love that second question that came this morning around how, how can we make practically get more buy-in for the things that we're trying to do as, as actuaries, um, trying to bring artificial intelligence and machine learning into, into uh, the insurance companies that we work for. And that's really what the, we're going to be focusing on today. So to give it some context, I'm going to be talking about evolution of, of uh, the themes on AI and just sort of what's been happening over the last few years and what's really driving also a lot of the questions that people are asking today. Then we're going to jump into just what are the basics, what you should be getting right, whether you're doing AI, machine learning, or not. Then moving on to you cannot build a model in isolation. I think that's a fairly obvious topic, but we've got some interesting examples around how it can go wrong. And then finally, it's a journey, not a tool. And if it's the one thing that you take away from today is that the whole idea or the, the thinking around AI and machine learning is it's not a tool that you, well, it is a tool that we can access and utilize, but it's not an end in itself. It's merely part of the journey that you need to forge. So just quickly, I mean, over the last 10 or so years, um, I think many of you have also attended the conference. I mean, I think you're all really glad that SAM is not the topic of every single, or every second uh, presentation. We've sort of moved on from um, significant regulatory change as, as driving a lot of the contents of the, um, the convention. And similarly, social media has um, really, I mean, when you open up LinkedIn, you look, you look at all these posts by venture capitalists on, on, on Twitter, you know, the, the, almost the, the zeitgeist, the, the um, feeling over time has changed from uh, big data to cloud to data science and 
blockchain, and so we had a lot of uh, blockchain topics last year too. Um, this year, you can actually see from, from the actual uh, schedule how many AI topics and machine learning topics there are. And so similarly, we, we had the topics follow um, at the convention. What doesn't help is that questions pop up like, well, will AI replace actuaries? One of the biggest examples of uh, fintech in the US, Lemonade, often uses and, and, and punts the mantra around the future insurer will not have brokers, it'll have bots. And it won't have actuaries, it'll have AI. And even big sort of juggernauts are stepping in like Harvard Business Review, saying things like insurance companies will need to replace armies of actuaries with data scientists and talent that can ta tailor offers to specific markets and customer needs. So as an actuary, even as a student studying actuarial science, where does it leave us? What are the sort of, sort of the thinking and the questions that go through our minds? I think fortunately, over the last two, three years, some sense has started to arrive in, in some of the literature that you look at. And the realization is coming that it's not only about the tech. It's the actuary plus the technology. It's almost the augmented actuary that will ultimately succeed. We had a fantastic talk at the short-term insurance convention two years ago by a guy called Stafford Macy that, that expressed that point um, very well. And so I think, unfortunately, if you look, and this has been my experience, speaking to a lot of students, speaking to a lot of young actuaries, a lot of the social media around today really gets people to ask these questions, well, am I doing the right thing? Am I focusing my efforts on the right time, uh, on, on the right sort of, sort of tools? Shouldn't I be learning some kind of programming language? So these things are obviously not helpful, and I thought maybe a, a good place to start is then actually to give a few handles just for, for us actuaries reading social media and reading all the, the hype and all the articles just to contextualize what is actually being told uh, what we are being told. So firstly, I mean, I, I would not claim to have a complete and full definition of what AI is, but I think it's comforting to know that there are a number of definitions floating out there, and I think sort of the consensus is there's two main uh, views around AI. The, the first one, and the broad definition, um, is what's called general AI or strong AI. That's effectively where machines have the ability to think like humans, and they have the ability to do that, not a specific, or specific to one particular task. They're actually able to transfer that knowledge from one specialization to another area. They can learn from one task to another. So examples of this include things like uh, data from Star Trek, the, the character data, or C-3PO from, from Star Wars. And although, I mean, the ideas are fantastical around this. You'll find that a lot of the examples are sci-fi. And the, the reason for this is because there aren't really any examples of strong AI that exist today. And I'll get to that. Well, I'll explain that a bit further now. So a subset of this thing called general or strong AI is what's called machine learning. So machine learning is effectively the application of statistical rules um, in order to find an um, a answer to a goal function or to a, a problem that you're trying to solve. And within machine learning um, is this thing called, and I think I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it, is, is deep learning, which is one of the particular technologies or methodologies underlying what's called narrow AI, which is effectively where most of the real work and most of the amazing examples come from that we read about in the media today. What tends to happen, unfortunately, is that when journalists get hold of some of the results of narrow AI and they see the incredible feats that it is able to achieve in a particular application, it's then often publicized as something that is general AI. And you often see the example around, well, if a machine could do this for this particular problem, surely then you can apply to everything else that um, exists in that realm. So for example, just because you've now trained an AI or machine learning algorithm 
to be able to distinguish or effectively detect objects on a road where a car is driving doesn't mean that same methodology applies to the reserving process within an insurance company if they've used that model for the actual pricing um, or, or, or used components of that model. Every single application still currently today is, is very specific to a, a, an application. And often you need, well in, in all cases, you need a developer, a software specialist, or an actuary, depending on the application, but you need human intervention to set that rule set. The second thing I wanted to add, um, to add a bit of clarification, is just around when people talk about machine learning. So there's, there are a number of, of areas underlying machine learning. So I haven't put down all of them here, but some of them include supervised, unsupervised, reinforcement. So, I mean, reinforcement is a very interesting one because that's almost akin to brute force. Um, I don't know if anybody knows the, those kind of um, approaches, brute force cracking or brute force approaches, almost simulation-based approaches to, to finding solutions, uh, as opposed to the more statistical supervised learning um, methods. But the point I wanted to make here is that if you look at under-supervised learning methods, regression and classification, things that we often do, well, especially in the short-term insurance fraternity, so GLM modeling, decision trees, these sorts of things, are very much a part of the world that is deemed machine learning. What has changed over the last sort of five to eight years is really a massive emergence in an investment into research around other areas of machine learning, as well as processing power and, and technology available to do these types of, um, uh, apply these types of, of um, methodologies. The point I'm ultimately trying to make is that just because we're not applying all ex the expanse of, of machine learning that, that is available, it doesn't mean that we are not able to quickly adapt and learn what is needed from uh, the, the various areas. So we're not as far away from it as we think. So for the rest of the talk, I actually want then to return to something that's actually much closer to, to the, the typical actuarial um, profession and, and our, our background. And that's really, I mean, we talk about the model life cycle. Now, I've not put down the actual control cycle here, but effectively it does, does speak to it um, in terms of identifying what you want to do, then doing the model, testing it and creating that feedback loop that goes back into identifying the, um, whether the model is doing what it's supposed to be doing and then there's sort of the recursive process that happens. So I'll, I'll be speaking about the first part, identifying your target and Lucas will then take us on through some of the other components. But to loop back onto so what I've just been saying now is a lot of the hype and discussion around AI and machine learning tends to focus the mind and the discussion really around these two things, choosing your model and, and, and building it. So inevitably, I actually think the first step and the last step is probably where most of the effort goes into and where most of the expertise um, is required. But often when we read what's available today and sort of the questions that emerge, it's really around what model should I be using or am I using the right technology to do um, to solve problems and to build products for clients. So to refer to an, another stalwart of, of the, the movie realm, Han Solo from Star Wars, what he's saying here, never tell me the odds, seems counterintuitive because he flies around in a, in a ship that has this amazing piece of AI that sits on top of it. So if I were to relate to Han Solo what I see often in insurers today is it's almost, he's a significant person of influence. What he does, he does well, he makes money, he, he effects change, but there isn't really buy-in in terms of what the AI and what the machine is, is telling him. So fundamentally, what it comes down to in, in my view is you have to start with the problem. You can have all the most amazing tools, you can have all the most amazing methodologies and AI and systems, and you can have the best skills in the market to do these things, but if, you, if you're not able to identify a problem that needs solving, it doesn't help. So, I would say walking the floor, finding what really troubles, what is really a pain point for the organization, 
And then finding a champion for your cause is probably the most practical next step. The answer to this morning's question around, so how do you generate buy-in um, for the projects that you want to do? It's really about finding that problem for your stakeholder that he needs to solve. Part of the problem is you also need to consider the environment in which you're going to be deploying this thing. It doesn't help, and oh well, I'll actually speak about this um, a bit further now. So just to emphasize the point, there was a data science survey done earlier this year um, that talks about sort of the main elements that hinder um, advanced analytics and insurers. And as expected, the number one element that emerged was that the support of appropriate skills, so finding of appropriate skill sets. But secondly, it's, it is the perceived um, buy-in from management. So if you unpack that a bit and you look at the graph on the right, it speaks to, so those four bars are reflect, or reflect the feedback received across the categories on the left, but for insurers that have different levels of analytics influencing strategic decisions. So the bars on the left, um, the left two have a lot less um, uh, analytics going into their strategic insights versus the two on the right tend to use analytics a lot more. And what you see quite clearly is the more management buy-in you have, the more it becomes a people problem that you effectively are dealing with. And we'll get into to why that is. But I, I think that's probably the most important element that I want to take from here. We mentioned earlier, it's a journey that you need to take your team on, that you need to take those in the organization on. And that's really the, the sort of the, the starting point is understanding how to formulate that journey. So just very quickly to, to put that into a bit of context is if you have identified a particular problem that you're trying to solve, but say for example you are dealing with brokers um, and they've got, at the moment, the brokers are pretty much set, uh, setting the pricing model. It doesn't really help that you have this amazing and incredible model in mind, so whatever methodology that you're using, and at the end of the month, you are still debating with them the accuracy of the premium volumes that, that are going through. So what's important to keep in mind is that you really need to make sure you have the basic building blocks in place, that your business intelligence, your basic reporting is already trusted. You already have the buy-in from the stakeholders um, on that. Secondly, you need to make sure that then the little bit of the analytics that you perform on top of those things are trusted by the parties that, that you bring into. So again, looking at the, the broker example, you wouldn't necessarily want to bring in a massive discounting model um, based on the performance of their book right up front. Once you've agreed the, the performance metrics, you might start showing to them, oh, out of interest, this part of your book performs better than, than that part of your book. Do you understand why? And it's about bringing them on this journey to help them understand what, what brings better risks and what brings worse risks to the business. And so we've got a few examples here or, and, and, and a sort of a generic journey which insurers can take. But ultimately, you have to make sure that the gap that you are, are effectively posing by what you are bringing is not too great. That's really the moral of the story. If the, the bridge is too far, you're going to struggle to bring along those that, uh, the, the various stakeholders um, in the organization. So which stakeholders are we talking about? So again, I want to end off here with a, an example of how things can go wrong. But to start, let's, let's look at sort of a generic example of almost like a perfect world um, stake, set of stakeholders if you, if you got it right. So firstly, you've got your, from a requirements point of view, so the product and the analytics and the, or the this problem that you're trying to solve, you're using hopefully a group of actuaries, some um, stakeholders from finance and some folks from operations um, to, to brainstorm and come up with the, the, the problem that you're trying to solve. The actuary will then go and build the model and once happy with the model, that now needs to get implemented. So hopefully you've got some business analysts that you can present the model to, the business analyst translates that into what does it need to look like from a system perspective for the IT guys to build into the front-end system. There's developers and testers, hopefully, in an ideal world, they should be building that and testing it themselves, right? 
and that will feed into a live system. If there are queries around that live system, the clients, the operational guys, and the intermediaries will interface not with the actuary, but with the business analyst, because the business analyst understands what needs to happen um, and, and what's being communicated to him. That system will then drive, um, so it'll either input or pull from uh, various data sources, and those data sources then ultimately also feed then the actual systems and the finer systems which create the, the, the loop back. So that's in, in an ideal world. If you then bring a solution which is beyond what the organization is able to take, and you almost try and bridge that, take that jump too far, what ends up happening is that the actuaries end up then having to effectively spec for the IT guys what needs to happen and, and what needs to get built. If you're really unlucky, then the actuary then ends up having potentially to run this thing on a sort of on a box on the side because what they've come up with, this particular algorithm, creates a rule set that is so complex or requires such vast inputs in real time that it, it's maybe not possible to integrate it fully into the current live system. The testing also needs to be done by the actuaries. And so ultimately you sit potentially with a, a semi-live system that receives a dump. Instead of real-time information from all your various sources, you're now running sort of a box on the side that takes a dump maybe once a week or once a month from, from the various systems. It's, it's not a full production state system. When the queries come, you end up chatting to the actuaries. So why isn't this thing working? And why hasn't this been implemented? So all the time of the actuaries is really locked into this operations cycle rather than them only spending their time on the requirements and analyzing, well, are the models still doing what they're supposed to be doing? So this is just an example of how, how things can go wrong. So I'll hand over to, to Lucas to, to take us further. Uh, okay, let's just get this right. Cool. Tall people problems. Okay. So, next quote is then from also another esteemed academic, Professor Albert Dumbledore from uh, the Hogwarts School. So, it's basically about our choices that are far more important than our abilities, right? So, assuming now we've found a problem that we actually want to solve, we now actually need to decide how are we going to solve it? What model are we going to do? And this is where it becomes in. It comes into making the right choice for the business, right? Just because you can build a fancy model doesn't mean that you have to. It's not the one that might give you the best business result that you're hoping for. Okay, so let's look at some decision-making factors that you need to consider. So what we're going to do here is probably consider just the traditional model, so our GLMs, our linear models, those, uh, and compare them to machine learning models. So even though GLMs are technically machine learning, we'll go for machine learning for being the more advanced ones, so your decision trees, your chain models, your deep learning models. Okay. So the first factor that we need to look at is how interpretable your results should be. So the GLMs and linear models that we use they're fairly easy to explain to somebody. Like if you think of, let's say, the age curve in a pricing model is, you know, as you get older, the rate goes down. That's not necessarily the same thing when you're using a decision tree or a chain model, is as you get older, it's not, well, I don't know what's exactly going to happen. It depends where you we came from, what's the, the path you followed. Uh, and when you go with deep learning models, it becomes even more complex. So deep learning models essentially work on creating hidden layers in your data set. So it transforms your data once. So if you've got 20 data points, it creates 20 more pseudo data points with some transformation function. From, that data, from those data points, it creates another 20 pseudo data points. From those, another pseudo data points, or another set of pseudo data points. So it's fairly difficult to explain what is actually going on in there. So it might seem find that, okay, well, the model performs well and that's the end of the story, but you need to consider who's using your model. So if you have intermediated business, is you will be dealing with a lot of queries if that model doesn't necessarily make sense. So for me personally, is I always preferred that the models that I built are somewhat explainable. The reason is 
there will be some broker who is quoting a client who has a set of identical twins and they're going to different universities and they're driving the same car. And if those premiums are too different or too, uh, well, it doesn't make sense why they're different, is you will get a lot of these questions. And essentially what will happen is you as a pricing actuary or just actually doing analytics will spend a lot more time just answering questions on why did this happen and why did this happen than actually building more models. So the second thing to consider is just the results. So the traditional methods that we use now currently can give you a range of results. It gives you a statistical distribution because they're underpinned in a by fitting a statistical distribution to your data. Machine learning isn't necessarily that focused on finding the distribution. It's more focused on finding a point estimate. So it isn't really that appropriate for doing any work where you want to look at the variability of results. So if you want to do capital modeling or if you want to do a pricing but you don't want to hold the best estimate, you want to hold the 75th percentile of your rates, uh, it becomes very difficult to use one of these models for those purposes. Okay, a signal to noise ratio. So this basically means is how easily can you yourself figure it out. So when we talk about the signal, we actually talk about the underlying trend. Uh, when we talk about noise, it's the variability around the trend. So the more noise is around your trend, like the more variability there is, it becomes more difficult for you to figure out what exactly is happening underneath. So if you actually just have a data set with a bunch of variables and you cannot find any trend in there, is you're going to struggle to find a statistical model that actually works well with your data set. And they might actually go for something like a machine learning model. The number of variables. So statistical, statistical models work best when you have a limited number of variables, a small number with a limited amount of correlations. So if you think about GLMs or linear models, is the additive or multiplicative oftentimes. So if you throw in 30 random variables uh, and each one of them is, let's say, ranked fairly high, you quickly get a number that escapes to a very, very large number, which if left unchecked in your pricing system will actually embarrass you. So if you're trying to charge 12,000 Rand for a car that only costs 20,000 Rand, like you embarrass kind of yourself and your company a bit. Okay, but this is the nice thing about the machine learning models is the number of variables is not that big an issue, is you can put as many in as you want and it will find the ones that make the most sense at a specific point in time for it. Uh, and it's able to handle those interactions very, very well. Because if you think about a machine learning, uh, decision tree or a chain model, it's essentially just interaction after interaction after interaction after interaction. Okay, if we're looking at the data itself, is machine learning needs a lot of data to actually function properly um, and to train it. Where statistical models can be applied on a very limited set of data as well. And the one problem with machine learning models is that it doesn't know what it doesn't know. If you haven't actually given it all the data, it cannot make predictions on areas that it hasn't seen. And for you to manually adjust those models is a fairly big challenge. But if you look at a traditional model, a GLM, you can actually fit a model on the data that you have, on the trends that you can observe, and then you can easily overlay your expert judgment on the rest of the factors to say, you know, I might not actually know what happens in specific provinces, but I can make a guess and I can add a factor explicitly for each one of those. But with a machine learning model, it's not necessarily that good because you don't necessarily know well in which branch is area a big concern and in which branch is it not. Okay, and then implementation, I'll get into in a bit more detail in the next slide. But one important thing to note is you don't need to choose one or the other. You could possibly do both. For me, is it makes a lot of sense to actually have a very simple model be your outward-facing model, the model that your clients will see interact with, a model that your brokers will interact with, but actually then using a machine learning model to enhance your understanding of what's actually going on underneath and find the trends, trends that are going on underneath. So one way to do this is actually to build your model and then constantly as time goes by is to actually fit a decision tree or a chain model on the residuals of your model, of your core pricing model that you're actually using. So this will actually help you find weak spots in your, in your model. And if it's a significant enough uh, deviation, you can actually build that explicitly into your model and include it there that you know it's happening, but that you can always explain what your model is actually doing. So 
When we have to look at the implementation, we actually just need to look at the process itself and where you want your model to actually sit at the end of the day. So as Cole said, is it's very easy to build a model and then be responsible for that model and that you have to do everything around that model and that takes up all of your time. So if you want to get a model into the live system, you need to get people informed as well. So if you're thinking about different models, so whether you're thinking of like just doing a GLM or machine learning model, is worth to go chat to the guys who are going to be doing the development, is to figure out how long will it actually take to do this model. So a problem that I ran into personally is that I built a model in a silo uh, and then I went to kind of the developers and was like, yeah, I've got a model, implement. And the guys were just like, no, it's not in the prioritization queue, it won't happen that fast. And essentially it took about four months for the model to be implemented. And by the time it actually went into the system, uh, I had to reparameterize it because it wasn't accurate anymore. So for me, is it's worth just chatting to the guys to say, how long is it going to take to get this thing in? And even if you envisage of how this model is working, it's not necessarily just coding it in. You know, it's also about what the model needs. So if you think that you might need data from external data sources that aren't currently there, you actually need to go chat to the guys to say, how can we get this, this data into the live application or into the API that it feeds through that I can actually use it? Because if you can't get that data in, like, you might have to go redesign your model at the end of the day. So if you think of, let's say, uh, credit scores, that you use. Uh, you might need to actually have a chat to the guys of to saying, let's say, can you get that score directly from the provider? If you can't get that provider and you've never done credit scores before, you won't be able to deploy that model until you have that functionality in. So you could rather spend your time doing something else that adds a lot more value to the business instead of going, building this model, waiting, and then re-parameterizing it. Okay. So we now know that we actually have a problem that we want to solve. We know what approach we want to take. We've decided it's going to be a very fancy uh, machine learning approach. So now we need to decide what we actually want to do in this approach. So as Gold Gandalf says, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And the question here is, is building this model the best thing that you can do with your time? Right? So should you now go out and go learn R and go learn Python or go learn SAS or whatever? And the answer is you don't have to if you don't want to. There's a lot of actuaries out there that have really mastered a lot of these more advanced techniques. Uh, so they actually know what they're doing with respect to the deep learning stuff. But a lot of us aren't quite there yet and don't necessarily want to be there yet. But it shouldn't actually stop us from wanting to use these approaches. So for me, I'm not there but I don't really have a problem in getting the data scientists and the statisticians and the guys that really know what they're doing to actually do it. But for me, the important thing is that we have an effort to just learn, that we improve ourselves and we just keep track uh, and abreast of what's actually happening in the industry, that we actually just know what, what these things are doing and where they can be used and where they shouldn't be used. And this is pretty much what we're seeing in the industry itself. So when we went out and go, went chatting to a, a bunch of the pricing actuaries and analytics actuaries, uh, they kind of pointed out that they're using a hybrid approach these days. They're not just using actuarials for, to, for doing actuarial work, they're using a hybrid of actuarial and statisticians or data scientists. And the nice thing about this is we have a very complementary skill set. So the one thing that we as actuaries are good at is understanding risk and understanding uncertainty and understanding the greater business environment. That is our bread and butter, and at the core, that's what our profession is. Statisticians don't really have this. And if you go read up on the reasons why a lot of the data science projects actually fail, is because there's not a clear link between the model and the analytics being performed and the actual business value. And this is what we do really, really well. We have that understanding. But the statisticians are technically a lot stronger than a lot of us. So for me, as I always use the quote, is we actually just know enough to be dangerous. And it's not like a cool dangerous, like karate. It's like a, it's a, like a serious dangerous of like, I might be able to sink an insurance company if I'm, not, if I'm left to my own devices. So the reason is, if, if somebody comes to me and say, okay, well, we want you to build this like deep learning model, like I can go figure it out. I can climb on Google, Google what I need to kind of put into R or Python or whatever, and I can run the script. But I have no idea what I'm actually doing. Like I don't understand the nuances. I don't understand the fundamentals out there. I will get results and I will be able to show that these results kind of make sense. 
but I don't know what I've done. I might have made some serious issue somewhere there, but I don't know, is you don't know what you don't know. So for me, that's why I'm actually quite happy to give this work over to the data scientists and the statisticians and the actuaries that actually know what they're doing with respect to these areas. But the important thing is that I can be able to give them the general context of the business, is this is where the model will be used, this is how we want to use this, this is what we want to get out of the model, and actually then take their model and their feedback back to business and say, look, this is what it's actually going to do, and this is what it means for you. So another big advantage of this approach is, as Cole said, is once companies start using more and more analytics, it's really not an uh, issue of getting management to buy in again. It's actually we just don't have enough people. We want to do more, we just don't have the capacity. So given that there's a bit more statisticians running around than there are actuaries, it makes it a bit easier to use them as well. Now, if you're an organization that doesn't necessarily have the capacity to actually have a mix of actuaries and data scientists, it's not that big a problem. Is you can always use consultants to do it. You don't need to do it yourself. And then we're seeing a lot of improvement in what we're getting with the crowd. As long as your problem is clearly defined and you can explain to somebody what needs to go in and what you want to come out and the mechanics underneath it, you can actually use these resources fairly effectively to bolster your team. So, more sci-fi quotes. Insufficient facts always invite danger. So, at this point in time, we now know that Okay, we've built a very fancy machine learning problem. We've got a good kind of problem to solve, or a machine learning model. Uh, but it's now actually just thinking about how to go about it. And some of the very common pitfalls that have come up, uh, if you don't actually do it properly. And I guess this is the thing of like knowing, knowing enough to be dangerous. The first very obvious point is to understand your problem. Uh, and it seems really, really obvious, but it's something that if you don't spend some time thinking about it, you can get completely wrong and that can have catastrophic results. So a first example is guys not really understanding what their data means is Facebook decided that you liking something on Facebook implies that you actually like it. Uh, and they ignored the fact that you might just like something for politeness. So what happened is they built an algorithm to show people things that they've liked historically and they ended up only showing people pictures of babies and basically clickbait. So the assumption there is, you know, that you actually just want to see the things that you like. But it's not actually what that meant. So the same thing happened with Pinterest that started congratulating women, uh, single women, on their engagements. And this was purely done because they drew the assumption that women who are liking or pinning pictures of wedding photos have gotten engaged. So the data isn't actually meaning what you think it's meaning. Uh, so it's worth thinking, if you're actually looking at your data, to ask, is this what I think it is, or is it a proxy for something else? And the importance for proxies is, especially in the insurance context, is there's some things that we can do and there's some things that we can't do. So to give you an example, in Europe, you're not allowed to rate on gender, right? But if you don't, if you're not careful, it's, it's possible that you can accidentally start rating on it. So if you include fields, like your, your title, your marital status, if you have a different field for widow or widower, divorced or divorcee, you know, you can easily start rating on that as well. Uh, and the important thing here is it's not actually what you're doing and whether you intended to not, it's about what you've been perceived to do. That's what the regulator will care about. So in South Africa is we have to be extra careful because we have to be incredibly sensitive about things like race. It's very important that we actually like, not ever try and rate on that or be seen that we're rating on that. Uh, if we look at just not understanding your problem and understanding the drivers of what's actually going in or what's driving your experience, a good example of this is there's a bunch of undergraduate students at MIT that wanted to build a self-driving race car. And they spent a lot of years just getting their algorithm right. And their algorithm basically worked on finding the perfect racing line to go around the course. So it's basically the most efficient way that you can actually go around a racetrack. And they taught this car to do everything like that. And it, the car performed really well when they, when they tested it against amateur racing drivers. But when it came to the professionals, the professionals demolished that car. And 
the reason is, and the professional spotted it immediately when he actually looked at the data, is they were so focused on having the most efficient racing line and following the most efficient racing line that they sacrificed the performance of the car. The racing drivers, or professional racing drivers, actually push the car as hard as it possibly can, and then once they need to make a decision, they'll figure out what's the most efficient one to do from there. So they made a fundamental mistake in their whole model, something that could have saved them years of work if they actually just chatted to somebody who knew what, what they were doing. Right? So it's the same thing for us. If we're building a fraud model, if we're building any kind of pricing model, is to go chat to the underwriters, to go chat to the forensics guys, because they might have a lot more insight into the problem that we actually have. And the other benefit of actually chatting to these guys, if you see something in your data and it's like, hey, this doesn't quite make sense, and you go chat to somebody about it, they might be able to immediately embed it into their process. So if you kind of go to an underwriter and say, look, I've found a weird combination, uh, you know, if you have this kind of person that lives in this area and drives this kind of car, you know, the claims frequency is always like 100% or whatever. They can actually say, okay, that might be a fraud ring or that might be something like that. And they can put in flags to look at that immediately without having to wait for your model to go live. So you start generating value from that decision immediately. The last one is just be clear on what data you have and won't have, all right? So Google created a flu algorithm that would give an output of whether somebody had the flu or not based on symptoms. So the problem here is when they parameterized it, they used uh, input from doctors. So doctors actually did a proper assessment and said, okay, this is, this is all of your symptoms. So what they wanted to do is basically, if you can put in your query of your symptoms, then you can actually win it. But the problem is we aren't doctors. Well, okay, most of us aren't. I'd be surprised if they are here. Um, we aren't doctors, so we actually don't know what to be looking for. We don't know how to take a temperature. We don't know what we actually should be checking for when we actually want to figure out whether we have the flu or not. So the model just completely didn't work because the data that they built on they built it on, it was not the data that would have been fed through as, uh, when the model was implemented. So one of the most important things is just understanding what your model will be doing, right? So if we talk about algorithmic bias, it's basically uh, when a model gets designed and built, it carries with it the implicit biases that was in the data when you, that you fed into it, right? So if we look at these things, uh, if you don't give it the right amount of data or a broad enough set of data, things can go horribly wrong. So there's a very big American company uh, that decided they wanted to bolster their recruiting, recruiting practices and bring analytics into that. So they built a model to suggest whether they need to hire somebody or not. So this model was based on a likelihood of success in the company. Right? And people with the highest scores would get appointed and people with the lowest scores would just get rejected out of the process. So they used a long set of data, like a lot of historical data to do this. And what happened when they started implementing the model is they stopped hiring women. And what happened is when they looked into this is the criteria of success was time to promotion. And what happened is in the 90s and going back, they just didn't promote women. So at the end of the day, is their model just predicted women have a very low chance of getting promoted, and they only started hiring men. There are numerous cases of image recognition software that fail to identify non-Caucasian individuals. Uh, and what is always the root cause on this is they haven't been given a representative data set. They have only been given photos of Caucasian people and said, okay, this is what it looks like. But when they actually go into it, there's not enough uh, colored people, there's not enough African people, there's not enough Asian people. And it can't, and there's different algorithms to detect different uh, kind of faces uh, that gets used in this. So that's just why it's so important to actually just make sure that you all have all of the data available when you're sitting and testing or parameterizing your model that will be feeding into that model and it'll be producing results on. The last thing to watch out for is just feedback loops. So this is basically your model just reinforces itself. Is, and the most relevant example we have of that is just echo chambers. Is social media sites decided that they'll only show people things that they think they want to see. And from this selection, guys say, okay, well, I'd like this, I don't like this, and then they show them more of that. 
but they don't actually ever show them anything else. So at the end of the day, you're actually only showing a group of people a very specific thing and nothing else. Uh, and from that is you can't actually change your model too much. You actually have to start from scratch again. And we've actually seen what a detrimental impact echo chambers can actually have on a society as whole. But I guess that's, that's debatable. So once you've now built your model and you've, uh, you've got it ready, the big thing is to actually then test your model. Uh, it's one of the least fun things that we can possibly do, but it's a necessarily evil. So you don't need to do it yourself. You can actually get somebody else to do it. But the important thing is to tell somebody how they need to test it, where you think your model can break, and where you're kind of scared that it might have a very severe impact if it doesn't go quite right. Even if you think the chance of the model going wrong or an issue is so small that nobody will find it, like I will guarantee you a broker or a policyholder or a call center agent will find it within two days and you will have to fix it there and then. Testing is not a one and done activity. It's not something that, okay, you've built your model, you've given it to the developers, you've tested it once, it's fine. The system is constantly changing and people are making changes to the system and you need to test over and over and over again to make sure that it's fine. But with this respect, again, you don't need to do it. Automation can be your friend, and you can set up robotic process automations to actually do that part for you. Finally, once your model is out in the world, it's important to do a show and tell exercise. It's important to go out and tell people what your model has done, what it's currently doing, how it's performing, whether it's actually adding business, uh, business value. The reason for this is if you can prove that this one works, you'll get more buy-in to do the next one. Document your models. Like, it sounds really arduous and not a lot of fun, but please do it. Because I got stopped recently while at a social event by somebody who was working for my previous employer and asking me, like, just what did you do? It doesn't make sense. Like, explain this. So it's important to just make sure that people can follow your logic and repeat it if need be. Know who is using your model and where and why. People will often just take your model thinking, okay, well, this is how it works, and we know how to work it, and they'll take it out in the world. And it can get you consequences, or it can generate results that you weren't actually prepared for. So what happened with me once is somebody took a pricing model and put it on a website, uh, and it started generating random premiums, and I just wasn't aware of it. Uh, and if I knew they were going to do this, I could have told them, look, it's outdated. You're not getting all of the input you want or these fields that, that are now in the data set that weren't there when I was parameterizing it so that you can just actually just protect your company's reputation from those kind of incidents. And keep walking the floor. Uh, chat to the guys who are using your model. Find out what they think of it. Is it working well? Is it not working well? Where can you improve it? Uh, and also then find opportunities of new models that you can build. Okay, and then basically is also just making sure that you're not getting stuck into a feedback loop. Is that you're essentially, let's say you're doing, you built a fraud model to keep fraudulent individuals out, is that you actually still remember what fraud looks like. You know, that you're not actually keeping all of these guys out and the face of fraud might have changed and now you're just actually keeping clients out for no reason. And then finally is just monitor your performance. Check if it's still working well, do actual versus expected reports. Uh, and if need be, then it's time to reparameterize your model if things aren't looking that great anymore. So, to conclude, I think the biggest thing is, or the four biggest, biggest point is, the journey is just as important as the destination. You can get a lot of benefit in a very short time by just doing the basics right before doing the fanciest thing. You need to find the right problem and then find the right tool. So if you don't find a problem to solve, Nobody's actually going to want to, uh, to take this, this project of yours further. And that's also why it's important to include the rest of the business, uh, that the business can actually fight a lot of the fights, that you don't have to do it alone. And then finally is you don't actually need to know everything, you just need to know enough to get started. So we've got one final quote, uh, and I think a lot of the quotes that we've used thus far were from fantasy and science fiction movies. And in keeping with the theme of our, our presentation, the quote that we actually want to leave you with is one that's actually rooted in, in reality and from our own local context. And the quote is, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. Thank you.
Thank you, Lucas, and thank you, Carl. Um, we're ready for a bit of questions. We've got a bit of time for questions, so um, please, uh, there's mics around, and uh, please raise your hand, and, and we'll get you. Maybe as an opener, while we wait for people to gather their thoughts, um, in terms of you guys talk a lot about skills, and I guess there's various ways to think about skills. There's a way of upskilling ourselves as actuaries to, to become the modeling, and I think Lucas spoke about working together with other professions, that's the, uh, data scientists and statisticians. Um, um, I guess, um, what, what are your thoughts, further thoughts on that? Is that, I think, what skills should actuaries really be focusing on in this space, and, and what should they you know, what, what should we be doing in terms of education and, and where are we going with our, with our own training to better equip us in the space? Okay, I'll give it a go. Wow, that's very loud. Um, I don't re recall the exact, the, the person who said it, but um, I think it's been mentioned at many conventions before. It's around the actuary who is only an actuary is not really an actuary. I think if, if we remain complacent with our current skill set, then we are likely to, to suffer the consequences of, of what a lot of the social media hype is saying around the, the death of actuaries ultimately. The reality is the landscape is moving. There's a lot of new things available that we have access to. There is a, a technology edge to a lot um, of what we do. And it's important to keep asking the question, well, what, what else should I be doing? What else should I be investing time in? What we don't have to do is we don't have to become all expert modelers in the various languages. One of the interesting things we've uncovered as part of our journey in terms of automation and, and trying to improve our internal processes is the fact that the, the way of a lot of the software packages and where they are going these days is to enable effectively a vast amount of the very um, complex modeling through a simple point-and-click interface. And I'm not saying that you don't need the coding skills. I think for if, if you want to really understand the fundamentals behind a lot of these things, you do need the coding skills. You can actually activate a large component of the, the actual workforce by providing them with the, the right tool sets to, um, to work with. So the point is that don't all rush out, register on Coursera and start doing various uh, courses on machine learning and AI. That's not necessary unless it's your passion. But definitely try and find ways to improve yourself on, on a daily basis. Any questions from the floor? Over here? Um, oh no, there's one here. Uh, any other questions? So we can get a mic to you so long, and over here as well. So this one, and then this one. <clears throat> Hi, thank you very much for the presentation. Um, on the point that you made when you were comparing the current models to, to the uh, machine learning, uh, or the statistical models, sorry, you said that the statistical models are easy to understand, and the machine learning models are more of a sort of a black box. Do you think that there's a point in time where um, as those models sort of develop, they would be able to give better output, which actually helps us to understand what, what they are doing. So at the moment, it's very much a black box approach, where so you can't say um, the models made this decision because of anything. Um, it's just given an output. But do you think there's a point where it might, might reach uh, where that uh, output could actually be more understandable um, from, the, from that model? Uh, I think a lot of the power in those models is they're able to transform the data in ways that don't necessarily make sense to us. Um, I think with some of the models, there's, it's a sliding scale. So if you're talking about like hidden layers and deep learning and those things, is those models, I don't think they won't, they won't make sense. They're using transformation after transformation. Uh, and the more accurate you want the model is, the more transformations you actually can use, the more layers you can put into your model. But I think there, there is an extent of some of them do make sense. So if you're looking at the clustering stuff or you're looking at your decision trees, is you can actually start finding the trend and then making your, like just trying to figure out what it means to that yourself. Uh, and people might also become comfortable with them a bit more in, in time. So it's again about the journey, not the, like not the destination. So you can use like classification models or like decision trees in your pricing but it's first getting the brokers used to it that you know things might not necessarily make sense, but we can have general trends that can actually come from the data. 
Yeah, and I think if I can maybe just add, so at the moment there's so much research going on in the field. It, it is such a moving um, target. So the question is, will they be able, will they become interpretable one day? Potentially, I don't know. I remember at um, sort of as, as I came out of varsity, neural networks were sort of the major thing and everybody said, nah, it's a black box. And there was quite a lot of effort at, uh, by the st uh, statistical um, fraternity at that stage. And I remember they came up with something called uh, automated, um, I think autogans, automated generalized additive neural networks that actually created a semblance of a structure that you could actually interpret. It was almost like a... Um, I think they call it like a spectral decomposition or something. It, it, it's akin to the concept. It creates vectors effectively of um, neural networks that are interpretable. So who knows? I think the, the, the key remains um, you, 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 know, you, you need to stay in touch basically with what, what are the, the current developments um, uh, that are happening. Thank you. Okay. Thanks over here. Thank you. Um, I'm Conrad from the University of Pretoria. I just, yeah, this question, I think I might have a very similar question, but the black box issue is always present. Isn't there a way around it that, um, so I think let's talk about that a bit more. I, I'm just thinking maybe in a naive way, you, let us say it's a supervised model, you have 10 variables, you get your predictions and your, and your accuracy. What about removing one variable at a time and look at the different accuracies and the direction of your predictions? Will that not be a way to approach? This, is, this may be a very um, uh, simplified approach, but why, um, why, why might that not be possible? Or why is that difficult? So I don't think, um, we're not saying there's no way of, of doing these sort of things. It's just, uh, I think what we were referring to was just often the interpretability effectively of the function that you, that you get out. So there's probably sort of numerical ways that you can use to try and determine um, what the impacts of various variables are. I think also often the value of a lot of the machine learning tools is their ability to sort of process hundreds of variables or massive vectors, you know, if you're looking at yeah. what, what happens in image processing and the translation of effectively the images into those kind of matrices. There it becomes quite difficult to see, well, why does this algorithm pick up, um, say, a particular nose shape better than, than another algorithm? Um, I think that, that, that becomes a, a bit tricky, but I agree completely. I think there, there are probably ways in which you can unpack these things, but it's a lot more difficult than with a traditional GLM. There are, there are some techniques, for example, to, fit, uh, to, to figure out how a machine learning model made a local decision. In, you know, why did it predict this for this case? Uh, um, there's also techniques around variable importance to measure the importance of a particular variable. So there are techniques and they are being developed. So there, there is some re promising research in that space and there is working techniques already as well. Um, maybe one more question, quick question, and then, and then we'll, we'll close. Okay. Okay, thanks everyone. Th uh, give, her, uh, give the guys a round of applause. One more question, sorry. Oh, sorry, didn't see you. Where are you? Um, your just call, just, just you. raise your hand, please, and state your name. Okay, thanks. You can all applaud again after this question. <laughs> time to finish. Uh, Carl, I was just interested in your comment that there are no real examples of AI yet that you made. I just wanted to... So, so maybe I didn't state it strongly. So I was talking about strong AI, sort of generalized AI, and, and the more specialized AI. There's tons of examples of specialized AI. My, the example I was, or what I was talking about was generalized AI, so the, an algorithm that is able to effectively learn by itself from one area of specialization to another area of specialization by itself without sort of human intervention. So to my knowledge and the research I've done, I haven't come across an example of, of, um, of general AI um, that, that's able to do that. I mean, even if you look at sort of uh, the IBM and the, the Microsoft sort of uh, their AI capabilities, those are still very much sort of focused or specialized AI methodologies that get applied to specific problems. And I'm happy to stand corrected if you have um, other examples. Not at all. I was just interested in whether, whether your view, whether it's still coming. Well, if you listen to people like Elon Musk, it's, it's probably almost here. Um, the, I think um, 
I mean, one of the articles I, I was reading actually stated it very eloquently. I, I forget the name now. But if you just look at the amount of money that's being poured into research on AI in the last five to eight years, I think it actually stemmed off some event in 2014 where they used uh, machine learning um, to, to train um, an AI algorithm on, on um, a, a couple of Atari games, and it managed to learn how to play these Atari games better than any person had ever played. And they said it's almost evil the way um, it learns how to do these things. Um, I think from that event and, and the amount of money that's being uh, sort of thrown into AI research in general, I mean, if you look at the Googles, the Microsofts, all those companies, they are spending huge amounts of money on general AI research. I guess it is, it is possible. Um, I, I wouldn't want to wait a, a time on when that's gonna, going to happen. Okay, thank you. Sorry, we have to close now. Um, thanks. Uh, I'm gonna get, the next session is the plenary in the, in the main auditorium, so you need to head back there now. Please give the guys a round of applause, and thank you for your time. <laughs>